they don't have to become administrators, that they don't have to go back and get another degree, that they don't have to leave the classroom and become lawyers or politicians, um, that they can have an effect and they can be a catalyst and they can leverage their space in the classroom to create just generations of change. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have the big ticks that are totally going to push their thinking. Today's guest, Ash Gelb, has an incredibly long list of credentials, roles, and experiences, but when you meet them, you mostly just think that you'd really love to hang out with them. Ash has a master's degree in curriculum design and teacher leadership and is licensed in elementary education with specializations in English language arts, special ed, and multi-language learners. Ash's decade-long journey in education has brought them to the margins where they learned the concepts to develop the Liberation Accelerator Framework, which is what we're going to talk about today. It's all about building partnerships between youth, teachers, and families to transform fractured, compliance-driven classrooms into learning communities where everyone can succeed just as they are. The Liberation Accelerator Framework, which includes the CALM, C-A-L-M, membership, is for teachers who dream of liberation but feel caught up in the cogs of a broken system. Ash is a pioneer slash revolutionary who loves pushing boundaries and challenging systems. So I was super curious to find out what caused them to choose education as a career. So I, I was one of those kids that really disliked school. Uh, I almost didn't finish I, um, and that was, that was because of my experience in education. When I was in third grade, I was diagnosed or assessed as being twice exceptional um, and being a person who is trans and non-binary, like didn't feel like I fit into my body, didn't fit into the system and was in a school in the Denver metro area that was very much the like upper middle class, but my family was recovering from some financial hardships at the time. Um, but because of because of being white, there was like this assumed experience that I was having um, with all of my peers. And mm-hmm. so it felt a lot like me as I went through education that everyone was playing by a playbook. I just like didn't get the rules to that. I just didn't understand. And because of the diagnosis of being 2E, I was put into um, the remedial classes. I was put into pullout supports. And I really felt like the education system and my teachers only saw my deficits. They only saw the things that were wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, it was one of those things of like some teachers, they saw me as a project, as something to be fixed. And when that wasn't possible, I just became like the the freak and the person that was kind of on the outside uh, looking in at what was going on. And so I really despised school. Um, and I became a teacher because I didn't want other people to have that same experience. But my life went through a lot of transformation before I got to that point for myself. Yeah. 
That really speaks to your resilience because I feel like a lot of people having had that experience would run as far and fast as they could from being involved in education and you did the opposite. Yeah. Um, and you, you continue to kind of along that line, do the opposite because you've created a resource now that is also all about not only supporting students, but is about supporting other teachers in yep. their very challenging job. I know we're, we're all super concerned about students and there's a lot of conversation about resources and what we can be doing to support our students in this time. But what are you finding with you and your peers? How are you kind of putting on your own oxygen masks and what concerns do you have? Yeah, absolutely. I think a big piece of what I'm experiencing with teachers um, in the classroom right now is uh, what we call persistent trauma. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Jeff Duncan Andrade, who talks about um, the shifted mindset of PTSD, right? Like in our society, we talk about PTSD of this past trauma, but there's new um, theories and understandings coming out around persistent trauma. And we, I think as a, as a society, as, as like people right now are going through that communally together. And what that's causing is um, what's called compounded trauma, right? Like I am in an elevated and in an escalated state. I can't self-regulate because I can't find my homeostasis, my norm. And then I'm put into the situation with other folks that are experiencing that same thing. And it's, it's, it's explosive, right? Um, teachers are expressing a lot of, of challenges and, I, and they're, they don't have the toolkit um, to, to express what they're feeling. And um, I think that it's then coming out in these ways that isn't being heard by those uh, people in power and decision-making uh, spaces because they also don't have that language, right? We haven't really shared that um, in the United States very openly. Ash is right. CBS This Morning recently reported on the growing teacher crisis that has only been intensified by the pandemic. In cities, 75% of districts reported a shortage compared with 65% in rural areas and 60% in the suburbs. Yeah, so as in your reformer spirit, you are creating or you have created a program to address some of these needs for teachers yeah. it could not possibly be more timely, I don't think. Um, I mean, I guess we've probably always needed it, but you've created a program called CALM and mm -hmm. it stands for Classroom Acceleration Liberation Membership. Yeah. And so I'm curious, first of all, talk about the name. It's so big. It's such a big it's name. So great though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You speak to right this moment in history, what's happening with our society, what um, the pandemic has brought to the surface for us and um, really accelerating into that. But I do think that we, there's need to, to, re, uh, to reform, is your term, um, but to, to revise the system that we have. Um, and, I, and it's about accelerating people to get to that point, to having liberation, to having freedom, to realizing what Paulo Freire was talking about of giving power to people who have been suppressed and oppressed for a lot of generations. Um, and I think that this is that goal, right? Taking teachers, the seat that they are in, that they don't have to become administrators, that they don't have to go back and get another degree, that they don't have to leave the classroom and become lawyers or politicians, um, but they can have an effect and they can be a catalyst and they can leverage their space in the classroom to create just generations of change. Um, and that, that's the goal of what we're doing. 
And the description that you have on your website and that you shared with me is a 12-month membership for teachers in diverse classrooms who are ready to feel confident in supporting youth to thrive in school and life by empowering youth to create a world worthy of their vision. And that is so powerful. And it kind of made me tear up a little when I read it because I don't know that any educator felt prepared or confident to support their students through the events of this past year, for sure. I mean, if I had a dime or even a penny for the number of times I heard someone say unprecedented or in these (laughs) times, right? I mean, it's just how we kind of start every sentence. And I know we all just felt completely knocked off our pins. So is this what led to you creating Calm, or has this been in the works for a while? And if so, what was the impetus? It's a great question. Um, I would say the world is ready for Calm. This is probably the fourth iteration, the fourth evolution. Um, It started as uh, work that I was doing with other teacher leaders in the Denver area where we created a cohort. Uh, It shifted to work that I was doing just specifically in my school building and on my campus to lead for diversity, equity, and inclusion and building equity teams. And um, and then now I lead across multiple campuses where I'm cultivating leaders to lead equity teams. Um, And so all of that has been the background. And then also um, some of the work you alluded to where I was working at like a policy level Um, I was trying to um, do some community organizing. Calm is about the internalization. It's about going beyond just the headspace of the work and into the heart space of what what our kids need, um, what we need in in order to just show up as full and authentic people in this work. I love that you've moved into a coaching role because there comes a point in people's practice and their lives, I think, in any area where they just don't need more information. Yeah. They need coaching and they need someone to come alongside and to apprentice. We know that's how kids learn. Why wouldn't that be how we, it's how we all learn. And yet we're asked to internalize from maybe one workshop or one professional development and then go, now go, go forth and integrate that into your daily practice. And we have no picture of what that even means. And that's just not how it works when you're learning something new. So um, I I can imagine that this coincides so perfectly with your current coaching role. Um, Can you talk really specifically and paint a picture for people who don't know anything about this and just give us your pitch? Yeah. So CALM is really about recentering our classrooms around equity and humanity, um, unlocking the power of our personal experiences as educators so that we're leading for our own, from our own strengths, um, which allows us to guide youth to do the same. And so we're built around five pillars, which um, has various levels of support. Some of that is um, kind of like units and modules that teachers can complete self-paced, as well as live connect calls with peers, uh, where folks get to come out of that closed door and into the light and into connection with folks across the country that are passionate about the same things. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really all starts with why and being able to understand our own why, understand our kids' why, and seeking to understand uh, the people that are around us and the people that we're in service to as educators. Okay. And it's, it's all digital, 
Um, so mm -hmm. teachers, this is open to teachers really anywhere in the world, right? Absolutely. They can be a part of this. Um, so the thing that excited me when I got on and started digging and learning a little bit more about Calm is that you, <laughs> you ask a number of questions um, as an introduction to the program. And I shared with you at the beginning of the podcast here um, that I felt a little triggered because it kind of took me back to these moments in my own classroom when I felt these things. And um, so I'm going to read to you from your own website for the sake of our listeners. Um, here are a few of the questions. Do you feel like this pressured to follow rigid school policies that you can see crushing students' spirits? Watching kids lose their passion for learning and feeling powerless to stop it. You can't even count the hours you spend accommodating and modifying lessons, and yet your struggling learners still aren't reaching their goals. You're tired of sitting through the same professional development and hearing the same strategies you've tried before. And, and there are several more. Um, the first one actually was, I, I mean, you had me at number one, honestly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I kind of flash back to this story and I'm not going to name names of this student, right? But this student was dying in all the ways, not academically. He was doing fine academically, but he was just not a mainstream kid. And this structure of school was not working for him. This sort of traditional classroom structure. He just, it was not the way he learned. And there were no structures in place to help him sort of integrate socially. So he was a complete loner. He would come to class. He, and plus he wore like camo all the time. And he would come to class with his hat on, got straight A's, right? Super smart kid, sit in the back of the class with his hat on. His hat, it was like his comfort item, yeah. you know? But it was also his, it was also his way of hiding. And he kept getting cited for dress code. And there was never any conversation about the bigger story of what was going on with this kid. Yeah, absolutely. So my question is, you say, I'm here to change that. And I'm just wondering what kind of magic is up your sleeve? Is it, <laughs> is it possible to actually change these things about our system without completely dismantling it? I think it's a it's a great question, and your story is so powerful because it it's the it's the everyday moment, right? I I have a hundred stories like that. I am sure a lot of your listeners have a hundred stories like that, and um, and I I really do believe that it is possible. Um, I believe that it takes both policy change as well as mindset changes. And that we have to be ready with our mindsets in order for policy to work. And so I think there's, there's a piece of, of shift that's happening that needs to happen around management, right? Classroom management, right? That's why this young man's getting cited for his hat because it's seen as a non-compliant behavior and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And leaning into uh, understanding classroom culture, into understanding 
the the reason right leaning into that why question with him of like hey what's going on for you that today you need this comfort item um and i i so resonate with with that young learner as a human being in my own educational practice and like that is that is my kid right there like at, the children that i love teaching are the ones that are that are seeking a variety of things and sometimes it's the non-compliant behavior because they're um, they're testing kind of like the limits and the boundaries of what's possible and and sometimes it's just the like this is what i need to function today yeah. this is the strategy i have of, it was one of the only ways of expressing his identity it was just yeah. he was not feeling seen in so many other ways and it was part of who he was there's there's aspects of what's happening there that it's it's symbolic violence, right? What we're doing is we're taking, this is your symbol of independence and we're, we're taking that away from kids. And it's about control and it's about, you know, um, part of the history of education is that it is uh, a system to teach young people um, how to be part of society, how to adhere to certain social norms. And, and that it's like side by side. And we have to recognize that that's what we're doing as teachers is both simultaneously teaching these like social standards as well as content. And, um, and I, we, we don't talk about it enough. We don't, we don't bring that into the light. We don't make that a direct conversation enough. And so it operates without us seeing it. And so when we're able to say like, this is why the policy exists, and that, that aligns with white dominant culture or what somebody who's, who sat at an office believed about what, was, um, what would support you in learning or not learning. You can name it, right? You can give that rationale. You can also say, and now here's the opportunity to engage with the system of power in the way that speaks the language of power to say like, actually we need to shift that policy. Actually we have the background and the education to say um, potentially to speak to, right? This is about self-expression or this is about um, self-soothing sometimes is what we talk about with like trauma and that like that actually supports me in learning. So can we test this? Um, but we, we, people need to be heard, right? That young man needed to be heard. He needed to be listened to. He needed to be valued. And then having the language to unpack the experience that he was having and that you were having and trying to adhere to policy that um, that wasn't designed to support him. It was designed to to control um, and to, to manage, right, to manage yeah. bodies. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So are you finding um, effective ways to shift and move the needle within your own setting where you live and work. And yeah. You share one or two of those success stories with us. Absolutely. This is where the, like the community organizer that it like lives in my heart is so excited um, because that's a lot of what I've started to do in classroom buildings. I spoke about the coaching a little bit and I think there is a piece of what we need to understand and like how far the system can stretch 
right? And we stretch to that edge and then we reset because the, the system has a new edge and we stretch to the next, next edge. And I think about yoga, right? Like yoga is always my thing, right? You do this yoga practice and, and every day you stretch a little bit farther and you stretch a little bit farther. So administrators that I've worked with in the past, you know, initially there were conversations that it was like, this makes me really uneasy. Like you had kids write an open letter to their teachers uh, about the, the oppressive school practice. And what if someone, someone saw that or someone in the media got a hold of that? And it was this, um, you know, engaging in the, in the dialogue of, and this is important for our teachers to see, and this is important for our teachers to hear about the experiences of our kids and the, the administrator recognizing like, oh, okay, so let's, let's highlight it in certain ways, right? Like let, let's bring out these pieces in ways that are teachable. Let's turn it into some of the development that our staff are getting, which it then became like the bias training that we were doing at our campus um, so that our teachers then had like capacity to move the needle on those specific things. And then from there, we were able to stretch into a student council and then into, um, even after I left, keep continuing the work where they were giving students a seat on the decision-making table for the school, specifically around culture. And because it wasn't about me, because it wasn't about um, just my effort in doing all of these things, because it was about building relationships and the capacity of the teachers and the staff, about building the capacity of the students to self-advocate, that work continues, even though I'm not necessarily building anymore. Yeah, because it comes down to, are we afraid of the truth? I don't know if you're a Brene Brown fan or not, but Huge she fan. talks about rumbling, right? Like, are we going to rumble with the truth? Yeah, I think in education, my experience, I won't speak to everybody's experience, but my experience has been, oftentimes we're afraid of the truth because we see it as a threat to, um, to power, right? We see it as a threat to positional authority. And through the work of Brene Brown specifically, right? Like I, I am lucky enough to work in a, in a school organization that really values that. Being able to surface that critique has value. I don't want to create lemmings in the education system. I want people who are critical thinkers and being able to frame it for my administrators of the first place our kids are gonna push back against is going to be the system that they are in. And that oftentimes is me as the teacher. And so I am prepared that like when I am doing my job right, kids are gonna come to me and they're gonna say like, that was oppressive. That was, um, that was an act of symbolic violence. That was an act of racism. And that to me is like the biggest win. That's what allows us to transform our system. Um, so when I talked to you in a previous conversation, you talked about this idea that I'm sure will resonate with every, everyone who's listening, who is in education, um, that there are initiatives that come along all the time, every year. They're introduced and they're often introduced at a district level or a site administrative level, and they don't always impact what actually happens in the classroom. And I know that your intention and your hope and desire with Calm is mm -hmm. that it's very grassroots. This is all about, all about what is happening in the classroom with teachers and with students shaping that experience. So I would love for you to paint us some pictures of how this plays out in a classroom. Specifically, you have these five pillars, right? And in pillar one, you discuss disrupting bias through intentional framing. Give us an example of that. 
So when I talk about reframing, reframing is actually a psychological uh, practice when people are going through um, PTSD. And so it's the, the process of like re-experiencing an event in your life that causes, um, causes a triggered response emotionally and reframing it to take out um, that trauma, right? Take out that experience. If you've been around pretty much almost any kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion training, you've seen the, um, the iceberg metaphor where you've got like 10% of stuff happening up above and then there's all this stuff happening underneath. Mm -hmm. Reframing is what addresses all that stuff that's underneath the water. And the way that I use it is um, very early on in this work, I was like, man, I have like so much bias, especially around black and African-American people. Grew up in a very white neighborhood, um, right? Media images, all of that stuff. And so I started to bring intentionality just when I was watching television, right? I, I picked a very specific time. This is the thing that I'm gonna do. And I started reframing for myself um, the emotional response, right? All of that stuff that's under the water, it's typically rooted in, in the emotional experience, which is the like impulsive parts of our brain, the like lizard brain aspect. And I noticed that I was like, had this like cringe response because of all of that socialization. I was like, okay, I'm gonna like verbally rewrite that. I'm gonna consciously tell myself that like this person is beautiful, this person is smart, this person is a leader and this person has things that I wanna listen to. And I'd feel that, right? I'd be like, man, take this moment to, to just feel that as I'm doing my daily activities, right? And over time, what happened is images of Black and African-American people pop up and I'm like, man, that person's really beautiful. The person's really smart. That person's a leader. And it's no longer, I have to rewrite it for myself. It's the natural thing. It, and my body, I can feel the positivity, right? I can feel the warmth and the love and the like, that's somebody I want to get to know because they add value. Um, and oftentimes we need, to, we need to do that on individual biases. Um, after we surface them, that's kind of the strategy to get there. Because we haven't chosen our biases and we all have them, exactly. uh, every shade, we all have them. So it's really about becoming aware and reprogramming those. Guilt is not helpful at any phase of that process. I want to talk a little bit about pillar two as well. You, um, I'm hoping you can give us an example you talk about the kinds of systems and routines that foster belonging. And I think we probably all have ideas of what some of those are, but I'd love to hear your take on what are your favorites? I mean, if you walk into a classroom and these things are in place, yeah, it's a good sign. Yeah, I do think, um, I think there are some interesting pieces that I have started to learn about coming from school reform spaces, right? Where there's a lot of kind of um, what I would express as like rigid policy that the, the rationale for that is safety for kids, right? Being in an environment that feels really certain. And I think that it's been framed through a deficit, right? Of it's kids that are experiencing the most trauma or the most suppression that need the most certainty because they're not getting that outside of this space. I think for the teacher that's in a school system that has that, there's the ability to, to reframe it. There's the ability to push into rationale, the ability to engage in dialogue with kids instead of just doing the, 
you didn't do the thing, here's the consequence, the you didn't do the thing, I want to understand, okay, um, I really love building these things with kids. So I don't necessarily have a like best practice recommendation. Mm-hmm. I have the like engage in dialogue and we will have some things that like, those are our pet peeve things. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that like we need to be successful. And sometimes that is um, talking while the teacher is talking during a like lecture or an instructional moment. Like I lose my train of thought. But when I can have that conversation with a student of, hey, I need this so that I can support you and so that like you are supporting me and this is like a mutual understanding and mutual respect. It's not just about like be quiet because I'm important. It's about your learning matters to me. And if if I lose my train of thought, you're not getting what you need and I'm not getting what I need. And like, let's engage in that together, right? We need to know those boundaries for ourselves as teachers because not every little thing matters. Like kids tapping their pencils on the table does not bother me at all but for somebody else that is like the end of the world um but when we engage in dialogue when we see youth as co-creators of a classroom culture and a classroom community that shifts us from the space of like oh I have to come in first day with all of the answers and and this set expectations and then I'm going to teach kids how to do those things that I want from them it's it becomes the like these are my boundaries. These are, the, these are the things that I need to be successful. Let me engage in a dialogue in the same way you would engage with the people that you love. Yeah, so in terms of best practices for that, it would probably be just making sure that we're continually creating space for those conversations mm-hmm. in ways that might be as simple as a class meeting every week and yep. making sure that students are involved in creating class norms and how we tend to those class norms and suggestion boxes and things like that. Just making sure that you're creating space for those kinds of conversations to be two-way all the time. As a writing teacher, we used to write our classroom contract, right? And that's what we would dive into. And I'd build it on the school's um, core values, right? A lot of schools have value systems. So we'd start there and then we'd build like, what do these things mean to us as a community? If you're a math teacher or and you're in a space where you do exit tickets, right? That's another place to get that feedback on a really regular basis. Um, check-ins in the mornings with kids, right? Like, give me your fist of five, one to five. How are you doing today? Okay, like that helps me to understand if you are the kid that like can and needs to have their hood up today, or if today is like you're like you're going to be on it and you're the person that I can like call on in front of the whole classroom. So yeah, building in that two-way communication through a variety of this, just the small teacher moves, right? It doesn't take a million dollar grant. It doesn't take a policy from the district for us to do those things. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even need to take much time. Yeah. I think a lot of teachers feel like I can't integrate all this stuff. I have content. I got to get through the content. But honestly, if we're not attending to students' sense of belonging, we know that they're not going to benefit from that content. Yeah. Talk about disaggregating data to disrupt a system designed to create inequity. So I, I read that and I have to admit, I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Um, we, we love data in education. Yeah. Um, we talk about it a lot. And you brought up this idea of guilt, right? Not necessarily serving people. And to me, data allows for that, right? It it allows for us to surface what are my individual biases that are coming across in my classroom that I can look at um, through as objective as I can get lens 
um, and remove myself from it. Um, the way that we do that, right? Um, I, I definitely work in a place where like there's very robust data systems and the ability to break out the racial makeup, the gender makeup, as well as the what we call L status. So um, English language learners or somebody who is an exceptional learner or with a learning disabilities. And then to, to, give, to take an honest look of like, what is, what's the story of the data? You know, is it the kids that are the most accept, like exceptional high learners that I really see? Um, and, and so what I'm seeing in their data is they're pushing to the next level and they're just like whizzing into the next grade while other kids are kind of being forgotten. Is it, um, am I seeing a variety of things where like it's, it's a gender difference, right? I'm calling on young women or I'm calling on young men or is it a racial difference? And we can see that in our summatives, right? I think a lot of us do that summative check. And then there's ways where if we, when we see it in our summatives to self-monitor in our classrooms, how many boys did I call on today? How many girls did I call on today? What race were various kids that I spoke with today? Um, and that I think can surface without guilt. It allows us to see what's operating under the water. What's, what's implicit that we're just like not being aware of. Let's talk about outcomes because we are in a system that is very focused on outcomes and that's legitimate because kids are there to learn and they're there to achieve. And so how does, how do these practices feed into improving student outcomes? Yep. Um, so Zaretta Hammond love uh, culturally responsive teaching in the brain. And I think she hits it spot on with the idea of that she brings up around, if I'm in a constant state of self-monitoring for safety, for racial tension, for this environment that I'm learning new expectations in because they're not the same expectations um, or cultural norms that I have in other settings, my brain is focused on all of that stuff and not on learning. And um, when we create environments where our kids feel safe, they feel like they belong, they feel seen, that in turn allows them to truly engage with what they're learning. And ultimately you see that um, acceleration. I can talk about the outcomes in my classroom. Um, our, my L population specifically, they were outperforming uh, other students. And that was because they, they felt really seen, they felt really valued in what we were doing. And that to me, right, when we think about over the long term, that's what, what is disruptive. And it's not surprising to me that they were achieving above, you know, they have an increased capacity to conceptualize things just by merit of being bilingual. In October of 2020, Ed Curation hosted a virtual conference at which Ash was one of our most popular speakers by far. Ash didn't provide any of their credentials or talk about their role with the district very intentionally. Ash said that the takeaway from these events is not the books they've read or the titles they've earned, but in how they seek out experiences that stretch them to question their own biases and use their position and privilege to create opportunities for silenced voices to be heard. Ash prioritizes opportunities for student voices to be heard and for them to participate in real world learning and activism. Um, as a community organizer, I've been connected with an organization called um, Equity Network United for Metro Denver. 
And through that, we put on a present, a um, like teaching for the superintendent and brought in youth speakers to share their perspectives and voices. Uh, a few of my students on their own time and just through some support with me wrote poetry about oppressive school practice and their experiences uh, through the education system. And uh, the folks that were there really loved it and they were invited to then present and share at the school board meeting as well. Um, but I think a, a big piece of it is engaging kids in systems that are already in existence, right? So that's one example of kids coming into these places where power and decisions are made. In Colorado, there's the Colorado Youth Congress, and I've, which I adore the work that they are doing. I sponsored an in-building version of what they do uh, statewide, as well as supporting kids that I taught to be part of that. And they do a day where kids go to the state capitol. And we did, we actually like, kids had the opportunity to lobby uh, for state funding and to do a kind of like silent sit in protest um, to raise awareness. And I, I'm excited about what CYC is doing is because they're starting to create these spaces that are youth led. So the youth are creating the parameters, they're creating the table of power and then inviting adults. I'm guessing that teachers who participate in Calm will have the chance to learn about um, how to create more of these kinds of spaces and opportunities for their students. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that they're going to want more information about that. So talk, uh, tell us what is the time commitment for teachers? Can they get continuing ed? When do they need to start? Is there a deadline? How does this work? It's a great question. Um, so I'm currently working on getting continuing education credit for this. It is a commitment, I, you know, teachers are crazy busy and being stuck in front of the computer for more time is not what a lot of us want right now. Mm -hmm. So most of it is self-paced and less than an hour for the units. And then that in-person or that like live experience, that live digital experience is another hour of time, which I think is like, that's what fills my cup. I just love connecting with teachers and so many folks just feel so isolated right now, especially. Um, I mean, pandemic world, yes. And as we're trying to push the narrative and the dialogue and we feel like we're the only ones in our campus or in our buildings that, that, that care or that are engaged in this discussion. And so being able to really connect and refill. Um, so you're looking at, at probably like two hours uh, per month. And it is, as you were talking about that, like ongoing support. So it's not a one PD, you did eight hours at a work at a weekend workshop or seminar, and then you get thrown right back in. But it's much more about here's like a little chunk of work to do. Here's a little mini lesson. Now impl implement it into all of these systems you already have in place. Implement this like little piece of reflection and then come back ready to do the next step to build towards what we're talking about with this like student leadership and this kind of student work. Um, but it really starts with a lot of internal and personal work as well. And those little things that we, we have control over. And if you have the capacity to like build these much larger systems for kids, that is amazing and will get you there. But if you are also in a space of, I just like, I wanna engage in that conversation with that kid that has the hat on and and, and know that he's seen and valued and just like 
connect with him. Like that's where we start. Teachers are just longing for more of that, to feel that sense of community, to feel like they're not doing this work by themselves because they can be so isolated. So who would you suggest, check this out, who is this for and who is it not for? Yeah, Um, this is definitely for the person who deeply believes in the capacity of youth to change the world and who is feeling really isolated and alone. Somebody who has read a lot of books, who kind of has, has come to certain understandings, but isn't necessarily sure where to start. Um, and then also, you just feel overwhelmed, right? Like you, are, you are already know that you are doing so much, um, but it just seems like it's missing the mark, right? Kids aren't meeting those goals. You just aren't connecting in the way that you want to. And these, these are those pieces. Uh, it's not for teachers who are probably in their first or second year of teaching. I think you're still figuring some things out. You're also just coming out of teacher ed programs and like testing the waters with a variety of things. Um, and I also like, I do not have a magic wand. You, you talked about my magic at the beginning. I don't, I, I have really good questions to ask and I have my personal experiences, um, but it, it really does take that personal and internal work to make this happen. At a time when teacher attrition is a major concern, Ash Gelb and Liberated by Design provide community, resources, support, and a vision for moving forward in ways that empower students and teachers to shift school culture together. You can find all of Ash's links in the episode notes, including their podcast, Liberated by Design, and their blog, The Pulse. And there is a free gift waiting for you at their website, so go there. You won't want to miss it. And while you're clicking around, make sure to visit us at Ed Curation. The past year has left us all a little drained and depleted, but we're here to help you come back strong, refilled and full of vision and drive. Visit us for all your instructional resource needs for free bite-sized professional learning, try before you buy pilot opportunities, and a chance to influence the future of learning through our certified Ed Trustees program. Let us know if you have a topic or a resource you'd like to share on an upcoming episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. And thanks for listening.